Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, in for Jerome McDonald. Earlier this week, President Trump weighed in on breastfeeding, of all things, tweeting, The U.S. strongly supports breastfeeding, but we don't believe women should be denied access to formula. Many women need this option because of malnutrition and poverty. The tweet was in response to a New York Times story which reported that U.S. officials at the World Health Assembly wanted to water down a breastfeeding resolution. The Trump administration calls the reporting patently false. But the U.S. has a long history of taking the side of the formula in industry when it comes to breastfeeding. We're going to talk about this now with Lucy Martinez-Sullivan. She's the co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit A Thousand Days. The group works to improve nutrition and ensure that women and children have the healthiest first 1,000 days. Welcome to Worldview, Lucy. Thank you. It's great to be here, Alexandra. And we're also joined by Kimberly Sears-Allers. She's a journalist and the author of the book, The Big Letdown, How Medicine, Big Business, and Feminism Undermine Breastfeeding. Uh, welcome to Worldview, Kimberly. Hi, thank you for having me. So, um, Lucy, why don't you start us off? I, I just want to recap sort of for people what this um, tussle has been about uh, with this resolution that came before the World Health Assembly, which is a, a body that that puts through these um, these resolutions. And um, this was sort of uh, what exactly was the fuss about? What what is it? What was it that the administration wanted to do the, to the resolution? And and how did things uh, go down? Sure. Well, uh, the World Health Assembly uh, meets every year in Geneva, and it is an international body of practically every country in the world. Uh, And there's different things on the agenda, uh, different global health issues. Uh, And it's, of course, hosted by the World Health Organization. And this year, uh, there was a resolution on infant and young child feeding. And the purpose of that resolution, as originally drafted by Uh, the World Health Organization, was to simply make countries aware of these new guidance documents and tools that uh, WHO or the World Health Organization put together, things like um, guidance on infant feeding and humanitarian disasters or emergencies, infant feeding and HIV AIDS, the Baby Friendly Hospital Initiative. So it was a a not controversial resolution. It was pretty plain vanilla. uh, And so we didn't actually anticipate there was going to be any controversy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We got an inkling of of some trouble, troubled waters ahead uh, at a listening session that the U.S. government um, hosts uh, every year in advance of the World Health Assembly. And in that listening session, they invite stakeholders from business, from the nonprofit sector, public health advocates to make public comments about the different agenda items of the World Health Assembly. And there were uh, two industry representatives that spoke out against this supposedly not controversial, uh, very basic resolution. Uh, And that was sort of the the first um, bit of concern that we had. And then when when the negotiation was happening, so the countries get in a room, they start negotiating the text of the resolution, uh, it became quickly clear uh, that the United States uh, was going to try to kill this resolution. I think that was their plan going in. Uh, And um, they didn't succeed. (laughs) They did not succeed. They did not succeed. (laughs) Correct. Russia stepped up. Uh, and decided it was going to introduce uh, the resolution, uh, perhaps much to the chagrin of the Trump administration, uh, because apparently um, the Trump administration perhaps was not willing to to bully Russia in in, in the way that it's been reported uh, that it bullied 
the country of Ecuador, which was the original country that was trying to introduce this resolution. So then all, interestingly, all the, the countries uh, that were negotiating this resolution sort of fell behind Russia and, and, and gave their support uh, to this. And the U.S. then tried to water down the resolution and weaken it. Uh, and by and large, it was unsuccessful. So you asked about what what were the things that the U.S. was trying to change? Right. Uh, I would say there were there were two things. So number one, the reference to the International Code of Marketing of Breast Milk Substitutes, or what we call the Code, right, uh, which is a measure that that uh, that lays out the rules in terms of how infant formula uh, should be marketed. Uh, they they wanted to strike uh, references to the code, and they wanted to strike references to a guidance that WHO had put forward about two years ago uh, to end the inappropriate promotion of foods for babies and young children. So that was that was one main uh, sort of sticking point for the U.S. government and the Trump administration. And the second was language around conflicts of interest. Uh, so the those that language apparently triggered the Trump administration, and it was sort of they interpreted that as um, you know it was anti-industry, and you don't want industry at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that language did not end up making it in the final resolution. And this code uh, that they were concerned about, which mm-hmm. kind of looks at how formula um, is promoted. Um, it's it's meant to sort of make sure that there's no false advertising and that um, formula and and right, it's it's really to prevent false advertising, correct? That's that's what it's there for? Um, it's it's actually to govern uh, sort of the ethical uh, promotion of a formula. So the code does a couple things. First of all, it prohibits uh, marketing directly to pregnant women and new mothers. Uh, so we sort of in the United States take it for granted because we see ads for formula pretty much everywhere. Uh, but that is actually prohibited by the code. It, pro- it prohibits uh, gifts to healthcare workers. Uh, it prohibits free samples being handed out in, in doctor's offices, in hospitals, and that sort of thing. So what it, what it is, is it's meant to protect breastfeeding. It's meant to uh, ensure that, um, that women get the, in- the information that they need that's unbiased, mm-hmm. uh, and that the healthcare um, industry or you know, physicians and healthcare workers aren't really aren't used as a tool of marketing for these products. And and that is a real issue. I mean, in hospitals uh, here in America, you know, you go to have a baby and there's lots of free formula um, you get uh, at the hospital um, in your, you know, to go bag and that sort of thing. It's often given to pregnant women as parts uh, at, at your doctor's office, whatever it might be. So that that certainly happens. Um, but in in developing countries, um, there have been some real in, some instances where women have sort of been targeted. Almost, Kimberly, can you talk about that? Important in that regard is looking at the, the WHO code is really as a way to curb unregulated marketing. So we look at other countries where they may not have the same uh, infrastructure in place in terms of the legal hurdles, in terms of the controls around marketing, in terms of even the staffing around government departments. And all of this can you know, create a sort of wild, wild west for large companies to come in without very little control over how they market. And so what we saw because of that over the years from things as egregious as, you know, uh, infant formula reps dressed as nurses, 
going directly up to mothers in countries like Jamaica and, you know, and in the Philippines to, you know, to more subtle things as we see today around direct contact with um, hospital professionals and nurses, even here in the U.S., where we have created some more controls around direct access. We see the still heavy prevalence of uh, conferences that are sponsored by the infant formula companies for the physicians. The fact that, you know, many of these infant formula companies have uh, nutrition, quote unquote, institutes so they can train physicians and nurses. And, you know, these are the more insidious ways where we see these violations happening. And then obviously in developing countries, we still see some of the, you know, egregious tactics that um, have been become the hallmark of why the code exists in the first place. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon. I'm talking with Kimberly Sears Aller. She's author of the book, The Big Letdown, How Medicine, Big Business and Feminism Undermine Breastfeeding. I'm also talking with Lucy Martinez Sullivan. She's the co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit 1000 Days. They work on issues related to maternal health. Um, coming up next, we're going to talk about the reproductive justice movement here. Um you know, Lucy, I, I'm wondering this this sort of uh, the way that the this whole thing went down uh, at the World Health Assembly. It's not new. Kimberly mentioned this. We have a long uh, history here in the U.S. of basically siding. Would you say siding with the the formula industry when it comes to deciding whether we're going to um, kind of outright promote breastfeeding or kind of give them equal weight? Yes, I would. I would say that's accurate. Um, in fact, uh, th- that long history um, began um, really in in 1981 when the uh, when the code uh, was first uh, put forward. Uh, the United States was the only country in the world to vote against the code, uh, and that was under the Reagan administration. Uh, and uh, if you read the reports at the time, the Reagan White House uh, got sort of personally involved in that negotiation uh, to ensure that the U.S. would stand against the code. And and the, the reasoning or the rationale for they used uh, was that the code of marketing uh, for breast milk substitutes was a was an impingement on freedom of, of speech um, and uh, the, the rights to, of companies to, to market their products. Uh, what's what's at stake here is is this notion of private profit versus public health. So let's mm-hmm. go back to why the code exists and why it matters. And Kimberly started to allude to it. Um, it's because breastfeeding saves lives. Um, breastfeeding is incredibly important for the health and well-being of of children, but also the health and well-being of mothers. Uh, so it's 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 essential that there be policies in place that support breastfeeding, that protect breastfeeding, uh, and and that's why many of us who who work on this issue um, have been trying to call attention to the industry interference on global breastfeeding policy making and infant nutrition uh, policy making. And, and the relationship between the U.S. government and the infant formula industry is, is, a, is a really interesting one, of course, that has um, a lot of different chapters. Uh, the, the U.S., for example, domestically, is the largest uh, customer for infant formula. Hmm. That's because uh, the U.S. government purchases uh, a tremendous amount of infant formula for the WIC program, for example, the uh-huh. Women, Infant, and Children hmm. program, which serves about 50% of, of all babies born in, in the U.S. 
so you know this this long history um, I think is is playing out um, right now, and you know this administration has shown to be very pro business, uh, very industry friendly, uh, and I think what happened at the World Health Assembly, uh, you know, a few weeks ago really does illustrate the you know the the Trump administration sort of carrying water for 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 industry. I mean, we we certainly saw this. Uh, you know, you mentioned the the tweet uh, that uh, the president put out. Um, and you know it's it's interesting to to have the president talk about breastfeeding. I think we were many of us were surprised. Um, sure. I think some of us uh, were pleased to see uh, that Attention. Donald. <laughs> yes, well, and that Donald sure. Trump said that he would that he supports breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, but the reality is on the ground here in, in the United States. Of course, as we know, is 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 very different. Um, well, so Kimberly, what you know, I saw the some of the statistics just about how much lobbying, you know, the the formula um, industry spent, um, you know, close to a million dollars. Um, so there's big money um, going into these policies. Uh, where, if the World Health Organization and sort of the fact that lots of other nations have basically signed on to this, if that's not enough to kind of um, hit the problem on the head where 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 do we see sort of a real solution to this issue coming from well i think it has to come from you know kind of the the ground up because we actually have the power as consumers and as citizens to ask questions of our elected officials particularly on the state level around um, the contributions that they receive around the state contracts for infant formula that are given out which are highly lucrative highly sought after you know how those contracts are awarded and to whom and what the impact is for the babies in that in that area so you know we have to keep keep saying that this is not okay. And I think one of the things that is so important is to make this line between we understand that infant formula needs to exist. We understand that we live in a commercial society where these businesses, you know, are entitled to make a reasonable amount of money. But what we are saying is that the year over year increases that some of these companies enjoy that quite frankly, Apple would love to have, um, is, it, it, it really is, is dependent on the type of unethical marketing practices, getting more women to not breastfeed and to get them to not breastfeed for even longer. So the whole business model is based on curbing and curtailing breastfeeding, and that's what needs to stop. And so really, it's part on the um, on the onus of the companies to regulate themselves to say, hey, we actually want to be responsible about how we do business. And then it's us on it's on us as consumers to hold them accountable and to say, no, we expect you to be a responsible business. You can exist. We understand that. But you should be responsible in how you um market your products according to the WHO code and also in terms of what is considered the difference between kind of profiting and profiteering, which really we all should protect. And especially because we're talking about infants, what's so unique about this whole conversation is that for the rest of us, right, if I eat too much sugar or something Mm -hmm. today, I could balance it out tomorrow. I'm going to hit my Zumba class a little bit extra or something. But infants don't have the ability to do that. I mean, if when when a mother is stopped from breastfeeding, that infant is solely dependent on infant formula, you know, for the first 12 months of their lives, for the most part, you know, as as their primary source of nutrition. So what we're saying is that because this period is so critical developmentally for children, that we should have more regulation, we should have more company responsibility, we should have more citizen outcry and not less. 
because of how critical this period is when that is often the sole source of nutrition for far too many infants. And so this is why this matter is so critically important and why, you know, some basic things that we feel, you know, like just as this resolution should not be passed without, you know, with all this controversy. Kimberly Sears Allers is a journalist and author. She's author of the book, The Big Letdown, How Medicine, Big Business and Feminism Undermine Breastfeeding. Lucy Martinez Sullivan is the co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit A Thousand Days. The group works in the U.S. and globally to improve nutrition and ensure women and children have the healthiest first 1,000 days. Thank you both so much and talking to us about breastfeeding and the marketing of formula. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon. According to the CDC, black women are three to four times as likely to die giving birth as their white counterparts. And infant mortality rates for black children are three times higher than those of white children. We hear these kinds of statistics often, but there's a growing movement here in Chicago and beyond to address these inequalities. And doulas are at the forefront of the reproductive justice movement. Amy Catania is the volunteer executive director of Chicago Volunteer Doulas. Hi, Amy. Hello. Janine Valerie Logan is a nurse, doula, and certified lactation education specialist. Hello. Good morning. And Stephanie Martin. Martinez is a bilingual certified doula registered nurse and midwifery student. Hi, Stephanie. Hello. And they're joining me here to talk about this movement. Um, So just kind of for people that kind of don't know, the difference between a doula and a midwife is what, Amy? Well, a midwife has clinical responsibilities. So Um, A midwife is trained as a baby catcher in normal physiological childbirth um, and takes heart tones, does cervical exams, those sorts of things. A doula doesn't have those clinical responsibilities and so is just available to pregnant people, moms, um, and their families to give them informational support, physical support, and to... um, help them through the process, be a translator, and make it a little less unknown, a little more accessible. Okay. Now, I use this term, uh, reproductive justice movement. And I think, you know, especially this week, we've had a nominee to the Supreme Court, lots of talk about Roe v. Wade (laughs) and reproductive rights. And I think people are familiar with that term, reproductive uh, justice. But what, um, what exactly does it mean and what is the movement really about? Jeanine? Yes. Um, so reproductive justice is a, actually a term that was created by women of color in response to um, the lack of intersectionality between reproductive health care and reproductive rights. Um, so when we talk about reproductive justice, we're also talking about birth justice, but on a larger scale. So birth justice is connected to economic justice or environmental justice or social justice and 
food justice, all these different... All those things that mm-hmm. mean unequal access exactly. and unequal experience. And it was okay. started, uh, we should mention, here in Chicago, right? Absolutely, after the Pro-Illinois Choice Conference. Mm-hmm. And, and who was behind it? <laughs> Loretta Ross and Sister Song, and a bunch mm-hmm. of women of color who caucused here after um, they felt, of course, um, ignored at... Uh, at National conferences, I mean, mm-hmm. international conferences talking about reproductive. That basically it mm-hmm. was white women kind of leading the way and that they, they didn't have enough of a voice and needed their own, mm-hmm. their own voice. Absolutely. And I would just add birth justice, too, um, is not actually about, only about giving birth. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, decriminalizing parenting for people of color, about, you know, not separating children from families. And Stephanie can talk more about that. But it's it's. It's bigger than just the actual physiology of birth. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about all those things that contribute to being a parent and making choices about being a parent. Right. Or not being a parent. Mm-hmm. It's really about bodily autonomy at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the big things that got ignored before by, by, by white feminists were that people of color were being sterilized without their consent by the government. Mm-hmm. Um, this is well documented and happened up until pretty recently. It's, it's still happening it's still. in some places for folks that are incarcerated um, and for Native American folks. So um, we have a pretty specific um, trauma, that intergenerational trauma mm-hmm. that we're healing from. So. I mean, and women of color were often sort of used in a lot of gynecological research Absolutely. and experimentation, right? That Absolutely. people yeah. may or may not um, – fistula treatment, I believe, was um, – the guy that was the guy in the right? Marion Sims. <laughs> so. Well, let's not talk about him. Let's talk about our, our nature sure. and yeah. Betsy and the women who that he did those surgeries on. Sure, yeah. I mean, names. Uh-huh. Yeah. right. It, it comes out yeah. of right that that uh, inequality. Sure, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, and so doulas um, I, have become a voice now in this uh, movement, and it's interesting because, um, well, why is that? Hmm. <laughs> Well, you know, birth has been um, taken from women and birthing individuals and medicalized. And, you know, that has a lot of pros and um, life-saving benefits. But one of the cons is that we as communities no longer understand what takes place when a normal physiological birth is happening. And so doulas um, are giving back that knowledge, taking back that knowledge um, and that understanding to women and to birthing individuals. Yeah, Jane. Can I just add, um, and it's not that it's a new movement. It's, uh, I would say, more mainstream than um, advertised movement. Like we, although, you know, birth was taken to the hospital, we were still at home. We were aunties or sisters. Mm-hmm. People would come to the house and, mm-hmm. you know, help you postpartumly or, you know, prenatally to take care of your other children, make food for you. Those were things that, that have always happened. It's just now there's a term uh-huh. that um, people mm-hmm. can use to and market themselves. Out. Yeah, right. market themselves and make money. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, the, the sort of, I think I said new, I mean, mm-hmm. there's been this right for a hundred, you know, as you mentioned, we used to, everybody, lots of people used to give birth at home and had a network of people who were involved kind of leading up to it during, mm-hmm. after you had, and then it moved to the hospital and then kind of the, 
the movement to sort of reclaim and maybe not do medical birth, that, that did sort of start in a kind of more upper class, mm-hmm. uh, would you say, white mm-hmm. community where women were choosing. You make your birth plan. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. How do you want to do it? Do you want to go to a hospital? Right. That's kind of the standard practice. So where when did um, doula sort of enter and say, actually, this is something that we should be making available to everybody and make accessible to everybody? How did that genesis take place? Uh, well, Amy? I, I think I mean, this is um, Chicago is a, a place where a lot of this work has been getting done um, over the last 20, 25 years. Um, the Health Connect One is an organization in Chicago. Um, the Outs of Prevention are, uh, is another um, that have been really championing community doulas and looking at the ways in which um, those who are the most vulnerable benefit the most um, in terms of lower cesarean rates, lower maternal maternal mortality, lower infant mortality, higher satisfaction, mm-hmm. um, lower preterm birth. Um, the the, the data has been there um, mm-hmm. for, for quite some time, mm-hmm. um, starting with the work of those organizations, um, you know, a generation ago. Um, and, and Chicago has been at the forefront of that. Uh, and now um, we have both the community doulas and then private doulas. Um, Chicago Volunteer Doulas also offers um, volunteer doulas who sort of fill in some of the gaps between those two models. Um, Meaning you guys don't get paid. If you're volunteering, it means you're serving as a doula, but there's right. no money. <laughs> that's right. We do. We offer two models, the traditional where um, folks can meet their doula ahead of time, um, and we ask them to make a donation for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also we are on call at eight different hospitals around the city working with midwives um, who can offer our services to a person in labor who might not even know what the definition of the word doula is, but when their provider describes it to them at five centimeters, they say, hey, yes. That sounds yes, good. please. <laughs> <laughs> I could use a little friendly help. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we see that even there, that that improves outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, this, um, this, this uh, Chicago uh, sort of, I, I, I want to say wraparound, but I'm not sure that's the, the best word for it. But this is, this is a Chicago phenomenon. Um, it's happening all, all across the country, but um, we want to see um, more of it. Uh, we want to see more dual services getting in there, filling those gaps. And I think filling the gaps is a really good way of putting it, just because, um, you know, like Janine mentioned before, you know, midwives of color, immigrant midwives, Native American midwives were deliberately criminalized out of practice when the field of OBGYN came up. Um, and currently, like even certified nurse midwives make up they, they, they catch less than 10% of babies in the U.S. right now. So it's a field overwhelmingly being run by OBGYNs. And it's a field that's overwhelmingly white, even though, you know, babies that are white in the U.S., it makes about 52% of the total births last year, but over 80% of midwives are white. So mm-hmm. we're really not seeing ourselves reflected in our providers, and doulas can kind of serve as a bridge just to see somebody that looks like us and make it feel a little safer. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, childbirth is such a personal mm-hmm. um, kind of vulnerable moment for mm-hmm. um for someone. So do you find that you get a lot of requests, you know, that the women do request, they they want someone of color, yes. they want yes. someone who Absolutely. culturally yes. understands where they're coming from. Or that from. speaks their language. You know? mm-hmm. And we find that lots of um, people want to become doulas, mm-hmm. but or want to become um, health workers and are, and are feeling shut out um, by 
you know, the inaccessibility of the education. So um, getting doula training and is a way that we can really increase the numbers of birth workers of color, mm-hmm. like Janine and Stephanie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think um, I think I think that's a really good point because that has been one of the biggest barriers, I, I believe, for one of women of color to become midwives or to become doulas. They're costly. Yeah. Um, I'll mm-hmm. speak for myself. It's hard to be available for births when you have other children and other responsibilities or work and <laughs> might not be getting paid for it. Like mm-hmm. those are, those are real issues and barriers to keeping, yes. keeping and us out of uh, the doula business. And to be clear, we believe that uh, doula work, I mean, can be both community work, right? That people, yeah. aunties and cousins and family members mm-hmm. do for each other. And we are putting that back into communities. We also believe that professional doulas should get well paid. Yes. 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 <laughs> Resounding yes. <laughs> it is hard work. <laughs> you know, um, one of the areas I, I, I mentioned those um, statistics earlier, uh, kind of of some of the inequities that we see play out just in terms of, you know, um, maternal deaths and infant mortality. But you see those same statistics when it comes to rates of cesareans, which is much higher in the black community or even preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. Um, 60% more cases, I think, was mm-hmm. 60% more um, yeah. occurrence. Um, and one of the th- there's been a kind of growing body of research that suggests that stress sort of from racism mm-hmm. is contributing to some of these health issues related to um maternal health of women of color. And I've seen that the research that one of the things that doulas are particularly good at is reducing stress levels. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a program in New York that paired doulas with a community hospital that had really high rates of um, maternal mortality and saw those decrease. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how is it that doulas, what, what, is it, what is it about that relationship that tends to help women overcome stress? Mm-hmm. Stephanie? Um, so it's it's interesting. Like I've heard that there's studies where um, there'll be a doula in the room who literally doesn't say a word the entire time, doesn't touch the patient at all. She's just sitting in a corner in the room, flying the wall, and they've noticed like even lower rates of cesareans just from having that witness present. Hmm. Um, so, and something else that that I found interesting too is um, a, a while back the Young Women's Empowerment Project put out a research study that um, youth who were you know street-based youth were as likely to experience violence at the hands of healthcare workers as they were police officers, um, and that was really for me personally like the 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 the, the icing on the cake for me to decide to become a nurse because I was so sick of people being treated poorly you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so doulas very quickly just kind of explain what's happening physiologically so it's not as scary get which it. helps a whole lot yeah. <laughs> doesn't they matter get if you're it. getting an IUD put in or having a baby, whatever, sure. you know, but sometimes that communication just isn't there because health mm-hmm. workers either aren't trained or just don't have the time. Uh-huh. You know? uh-huh. And yeah. health workers are representative of the rest of society and carry that bias into their Absolutely. work. And so mm-hmm. a, having a doula in the room mitigates um, the presence of that. Um, we, you know, have seen, uh, and I, I don't remember the origin of the study, but that saying medical students believe that um, African-American patients felt less pain. Mm-hmm. And so just having someone in the room who maybe isn't speaking for the, the patient or for the, the mom, but making space for mm-hmm. the mom to speak up or the, or the partner to speak up on their own behalf, just saying, hey, would you like to ask about <laughs> blank? Right. Right. 
Amy Catania is the Volunteer Executive Director of Chicago Volunteer Doulas. Janine Logan is a nurse doula and certified lactation education specialist. Stephanie Martinez is a bilingual certified doula, registered nurse, and midwifery student. And Stephanie and Janine are also co-founders of Chicago Birth Workers of Color, and they are both soon to be midwives. Yes. Really soon. Mm. Stephanie has just weeks to go. Yes. Um, so if you need... <laughs> Send good vibes. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us and talking about the reproductive justice movement, the work that doulas do, and um, the future. Thank you so much Thank for you. having Thank us. You. Thanks for having us. to Worldview on WBEZ, I'm Alexandra Solomon. In 2015, Greece became the first peacetime European country to ever default on an IMF loan. In the years before and after, the very notion of what it meant to be European and Greek was shaken. Greece experienced population loss, and for a short period, the state broadcaster, one of the only outlets for Greek culture, was forced to close. Amid the chaos, musician Nick Page released an album called Chaos. That's spelled X-A-O-S. He did it to reinvigorate Greek pride and show that artistic innovation can still happen despite civil unrest. Joining me to talk about it is Morning Shift and Radio M's Tony Sarabia. Hey, Tony. Hey there. Let's get right to the music. That is Pontus Blues from the album Chaos. Uh, and joining us now is musician Nick Page. Welcome to Worldview, Nick. Hi. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Oh, pleasure. All mine. So, Nick, uh, this album took you about 10 years to make. I'm curious, uh, you know, in that song we just heard, whether you've been influenced and how your music's been influenced by what's been happening uh, in Greece these last several years. Well, um, of course, you you couldn't not be in some way affected if you are partly Greek. Um, 
the album was made by Ahetas, who's a painter and microtonal composer, and, and myself, uh, W. Lott or Nick Page. Uh, you can call me Nick Page today. That's new. <laughs> I haven't done that for a while. Um, so the two of us were very keen. Ahetas and I were very keen to try and present a different uh, a different view of Greece, uh, perhaps to focus on the the vast and deep cultural and artistic history and cultural import of the place and, and also you know what actually exists physically that still remains of that very aged uh, culture and in musical and, and other terms um, the, the generally the breadth and depth of that musical culture is really not understood nor known outside of Greece and even in Greece a few very few people know about it because there's no outlet for it for it uh, is it, apart from state radio and TV, which is only just back on, on the air, although I don't know for how long, everything is privately run. So really there's not a lot of interest in popular culture. There's only an interest in selling things, which is the way that commercial media works, fair enough. But it kind of means that that aspect of Greek culture has been sidelined, if you want, um, and popular, very populist Popular art has been put forward, and this is huge. You know, seven thousand, eight thousand year old history draw uh, to draw on. So we were trying to present that, um, and I had to. And I, because I'm half Greek and he's fully Greek, but I was born in Germany and he was born in Australia. Uh, it's a long story, and, <laughs> and and I grew up in London, and he went back to Greece from Australia. So when when he was very young, so we we've come from we were both born outside Greece, but we've both in via a circuitous route ended up back there. The reason it took ten years is because I've been doing a lot of other things in between, as has he. He's been doing Aperon and S forty and microtonal electronic music. Uh, I've been doing transglobal underground well twenty years now. Transglobal yeah. underground, Natasha Atlas, uh, Dub Colossus, Syriana, Sammy Yerga's album. You know, a lot of work from around the world. But, the, you know, I kept coming back to the fact that maybe I should really get this Greek project finished. And the last few years has been very difficult for Greece, mainly because it borrowed vast amounts of money that it could never pay back and was encouraged to do so, um, which I don't really quite understand how that was, why that was done, when it was obvious that it could never be paid back. When you've got an economy that's failing and shrinking, because of austerity measures, there's been some very bad judgment made about how austerity will help um, provoke, you know, a healthy economy. And really, it hasn't happened in Greece. Has all of that, Nick, taken away from, I guess, I mean, you know, one of the most joyous of albums, I have to admit. <laughs> well, and, and, but that's <laughs> the thing. It's like Greek people do enjoy themselves and have a really good time. But I mean, it's very difficult over there. I don't think people fully realize. Has all of that uh, meant that people, especially young people, people in their 20s? I mean, what what do we know? Leaving. What do we know? So if they're not if for those who aren't leaving the creative types, if you will, is there still art being created? Is there still music being created? And if so, what what sorts of music are we talking about? There are very few people who can afford to to, to take the time hmm. and and make things because they have so few outlets. There are a few really good people, and there are some international names from Greece, like Savina Yanatu, for instance, who is a fantastic artist and uh, you know very well known records for ECM. 
but within Greece, he's a small artist. Mm-hmm. You know, there's very little protection of Greek culture because there's no money and there's no interest anymore. I mean, there's certainly no money to do it either. Well, how would you describe your music? Because you had mentioned some of the the groups that you've worked with, Transglobal Underground One, Dub Colossus, and they are doing what what a lot of musicians in other parts of the world are doing. You know, African musicians looking to some of their very old traditions, but bringing it forward, adding some new elements. It seems a little bit like that's what you're doing with this project. Is is that right? That the idea between Ahetas and myself, the idea was to try and uh, and incorporate and make known this huge history, this wealth of cultural history and information. You know, the very beautiful music, basically. I mean, forget all the big words. It's beautiful, stunning, transcendental music. Um, transcendent, I should say, at at its best. But but there was there didn't seem to be anyone making a really good fusion of that mm. with anything contemporary. I mean, there's a group called Mode Plagal, I think, was the big group in Greece for about 20 years, and they were the only group that were trying to do anything like that. People either want to, to sound like, um, you know, soul artists from Europe and America, or, or they want to sound like Turkish pop stars, but I mean, there's, mm. there's, not, mm. much, there's not much else. And, and for such a small place, again, Greece has an enormously varied musical culture. From the north to the south to the east to the west, there are four distinct cultures alone. From Pontus, which is the Black Sea, originally the Black Sea colony uh, in what's now Turkey, uh, you know, down to the southern Peloponnese or across to to Olympia or or, or up to uh, Epirus on the Albanian border and and into Albania even. Totally different traditions, different instruments. Pontic Lira from Pontus, Clarino from Epirus and Violino. And then Sandori players and all sorts, you know. So, talking with Ahetas, we decided that we would try and incorporate, because he's a microtonal composer, we would try and make a fusion of all things and say contemporary Greek music is what you make it uh, and we'll refer to the past and we'll include the past and the present and we'll look to the future. So let's hear another song. This is Processional from the album Chaos. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and I'm here with Morning Shift and Radio M host Tony Sarabia and musician Nick Page. And that song is Processional. It's from the album Chaos. So, Nick, tell us something about this piece of music. We've got bagpipes, there's a funeral march. What is this piece of music all about? Yeah, it's a procession. Well, it's a procession, obviously, alludes to that. But uh, Hetas came up with this uh, very bizarre theme. And everything else kind of got added to that. So he started that one. And uh, it has the Gaida, which is the Greek bagpipes, which, um, I mean, even as a child, I never realized that bagpipes come from the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, so there you are. I learned something. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
And, uh, you know, it's great to hear them. I think it's probably better if you've drunk lots of Tipuro Uzo, but anyway, um, I, I love them. They're, they're phenomenal pipes, and the player is, Yorgos Macris is just a phenomenal player. There are Zornas, uh, reed, little reed pipes as well, which were played by Manos Achalinotopoulos, which is a name you don't want to say after a couple of bevies, really. <laughs> the track processional really is about a procession. I think it alludes back to something like the kind of processions you would get in ancient Greece where people would go to, say, Elefsina. Elefsina uh, is still there as a town on these very ancient processions. Wow. People would go marching down the road with masks on, with musical instruments going. And I think, I think it kind of alludes to that, the fact that people came together to worship or to celebrate or to show solidarity with each other. So it's all about people coming together and, and marching through town, really. It, it sounds very old, is all I'll say. You know, so you had mentioned how one of the objectives of this album is to give people a, a sense of the variety of, of traditions in Greece, right? And, and get away from the cliches of the, the oompa music, the throwing of the plates, the snapping of the fingers, even music, which I love, the uh, rembatiko music, which is considered like the Greek blues. So why do you think... Why do you think that that Greeks themselves, and I'm talking about before the crisis, right, when things were relatively okay, uh, and perhaps even the dictatorship where there was music being created? I mean, why why do you think that the outside world didn't get us a, a, a different sense of what Greek music was was all about, or what is what it is all about, aside from the cliches that we know? Because I, I think Greece is a very small country and, mm. and quite underestimated. And, and, and it was presented, uh, a lot of modern Greek musical culture was, came via the military regime of the 60s. I and mean, the way Greece is viewed now, I would suspect, is, is that during the, the time of the colonels, for instance, a lot of musicians went to France, for instance. So mm. there was a great uh, support of Greek music in France and from France to Europe. But... What we were trying to do, Ahetas and I were trying to do, because he's Greek and I'm half Greek, we were trying to, to show and make the point that, that, the, that Greece has a, a, contemporary, mm, a contemporary culture to offer that really nobody knows about that can draw upon this enormously wealthy cultural background. Do you think that uh, an album like this could... You know, this idea that people get a different sense of what Greek music is, what Greece is really like, kind of get beyond some of those stereotype ideas that 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 potentially there's a space here to have music help shift some of the political thinking um, here as they attempt to deal with the with the crisis. I would really hope so. I mean, I I was born in Germany and I, I you know, <laughs> Obviously, Germany is one of the big players in this in this crisis with Greece. Um, and by the same token, uh, Jimmy was born in Australia, and there's a lot of Australian Greeks back in Greece now. Um, you know, I, I sometimes think if we could only persuade people to look again and, and rethink their approach to Greece. The political setup in Greece has been corrupt for a long time, and it's been supported by a lot of people. Uh, I don't think it's contentious to say this particularly, but it's been supported by a lot of people because it did what what uh, vested interest wanted and pocketed a lot of money and stole money even. Uh, but the, the the current situation is one that can't be allowed to continue. One way or another, something's got to give. And all the young people are leaving. I mean, there's probably more Greeks in Berlin than the rest of Germany than there are in Athens now. Um 
So, you know, it's, it's pretty desperate. I would really hope that if we can persuade people, look, you know, there, there is the cliche and there, there are the archetypes, but actually it's a, it's a very strange and bizarre place full of remarkable culture and ideas. You know about its language. You know about its cultural import vis-a-vis philosophy and education. But do you realize that there's a contemporary culture? You know, you don't have to look back two and a half thousand years to say how great Greece was. It's got some very good things now. It also had a terrible corrupt political class. And that really needs to get sorted out. But you need support from Europe to sort that out. And you need support from Europe and the world in order to change things fundamentally. Nick Page, thanks so much for joining us and talking about the music scene in Greece. It's, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And I'm trying, I'm t- we're talking about big subjects and I'm trying to, to give them the, the respect they deserve. So, uh, But it was lovely to speak with you both. Tony Sarabia is host of Radio M on Friday nights and The Morning Shift every weekday. Thanks so much for bringing us this Global Notes. We're going to go out on the song All the Gods Together from the 2015 album Chaos, spelled X-A-O-S. Worldview, we're going to talk about the latest developments at the NATO summit. Hope you can join us for that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, with production assistance from Viviana Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein, and Mike Gilmore engineered today's show. I'm Alexandra Solomon, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.